Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Throughout your whole career journey, you'll be thinking about growing your skills, advancing, changing, and even reinventing yourself. We want to help you do that, and we want to help you live your full potential. In every episode, we cover work and career topics that leverage my global HR leadership, and through interviews and discussions with other career experts and leaders from all over the world. Subscribe and visit us at modern-career.com and see our blog posts, career stories. We also offer coaching and workshops and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to a Leadership Profile with George Davis. George recently retired from Intel, where he served as the Chief Financial Officer. He oversaw Intel's global finance and information technology organizations, as well as the M&A function. Prior to Intel, George was the Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Qualcomm, a global provider of wireless technologies where he led finance, information technology, and investor relations. Before that, George was the CFO of Applied Materials, leading finance, IT, and public affairs, among other organizations. And earlier in his career, George served for 19 years with the Atlantic Richfield Company in a number of finance and other corporate roles. He serves on the board of trustees for the Old Globe Theater, and was a member of the Wall Street Journal CFO Council, the West Coast CFO Roundtable, and is a member of the USA chapter of the Prince's Accounting for Sustainability Project, CFO Leadership Network. He received his bachelor's degree in economics and political science from Claremont McKenna College and his MBA from the University of California, Los Angeles. Thank you so much, George, for joining us today and for sharing your insights. And congratulations on this huge milestone of retirement from Intel. Why, thank you, Mary. It's great to be here. And yes, it's a very exciting time. After 15 plus years as a public company CFO, I can tell you having a little more control over your life and schedule isn't a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's a fabulous thing. And if you don't mind, I'm going to go a little bit back to the beginning. I know it's You've got a lot in the next chapter ahead. Bring us back to the beginning. How, how did you get started and how did you choose to focus on finance? I fell in love with finance in general when I was at Claremont McKenna College. And it had a great economics program, great professors, and was also surrounded by people who, different than me, were kind of heat-seeking missiles when it came to what they wanted to do in their career many of them from the East Coast who grew up in families where their parents were in the financial community. And so I, I listened to their thoughts and, and then I, I took a lot out of the courses and I began to realize that finance was something that really captured my interest and made me work hard to be good at it. So I think that's usually a good sign of something that perhaps you should think about. At the same time, interestingly enough, I was I had always kind of pictured myself becoming a lawyer and maybe even idealistically being a constitutional law lawyer. So I had a double major at Claremont, which included political science, and in fact wrote my thesis on the implications of the Equal Rights 14th Amendment on illegal immigration at the time, which was, remember this back in 1979 or 80, and so a lot of different thinking at that time. So I was a little bit undecided, but I was definitely 
excited about finance. And then when I got to Arco and interacted with the finance teams there and saw how much influence they had and how, how big a seat at the table they had in decision-making, that just, that made the decision easy. Mm. Did you ever leverage the political science? Did that, I mean, it served you maybe foundationally, but did that serve you further in your career? You know, it's interesting. I've been involved in all the companies I've ever been with. I've gotten involved in government relations, either running it directly or supporting uh, the objectives of working with senators and congressmen on things that were important to the companies. So I think it did. And I think my appreciation for our system of government and how you can be effective in engaging, I think all those things serve me very well over time. And I I still find that to be an area of a lot of interest, you know, getting involved with things where you can help the government and business sort of bridge their natural differences is interesting. Yeah, and so needed today. Maybe that maybe that factors into your next step. So we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. You clearly have had such an amazing career journey to date. Can you, you know, as you reflect back, can you share a decision point or a career pivot you might have made, why you made it, how you made it, and sort of the outcome? I was thinking about these sorts of things in anticipation of, of being asked a question. And, you know, there's I always lots start of with a very easy question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's lots of things that, that ultimately probably have more of an impact than you would have thought at the time. But early on in my career at ARCO, I received an offer to run a small startup from the same folks that I worked with in college when we founded a, a fitness startup in college that later became Life Fitness. So good group, lots of interesting things, and it would have been running a small business for them. At the same time, I received literally on the same day an offer from Arco for a finance role in investor relations. And this was considered the development role for financial high pots. So for me, at that point, I didn't have my MBA, which I got later, and all the people being considered were you know, Harvard, Wharton, Chicago, hotshots that came in in the traditional way. So it was a great honor to be offered the role. Interestingly, the head of IR at the time, I wasn't her first pick, but the treasurer, who was this amazing woman who saw in me something I didn't see in myself, and certainly that my uh, future IR boss hadn't seen, and thought that I was the right person for this role and really was a strong advocate for it. So I get offered the role, begrudgingly, and instead of falling down and saying, thank you, I can't believe I'm getting this role. Yes, I can't wait to start. I said, you know, I need to think about this over the weekend. <laughs> so that, that went over like a lead balloon, as you can imagine. But it was a big decision. I had a great time in the startup in college, but I was also having a great time at Arco. So I spent the weekend, and as was always the case at that time, my late wife and I sat down and we talked about all the pros and cons. A lot more money initially by doing the startup, but the experience that I'd had at Arco was so good and the people I worked with were so great. And this was a, a really good opportunity. So we made the good long-term call to go with Arco. And so I came back and, and accepted the role. And it was probably a pretty frosty first 30 or 45 days in the role with my new boss. But to this day, she's a very close friend and we, we stay in touch. And it turned out to be a great experience for me. I think what's interesting in that, I'd love your thought, 
in some ways, was it sort of a choice also between something very entrepreneurial and something a little more, you know, traditional, formal, corporate? And I think it's not necessarily about capability because you did, you know, you did a startup, but it's culture and style and the work itself. And and they appeal differently, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because there is a lot of fun to the startup environment. The thing that tipped it for me was the scope and the the scale of what you get to get involved with and the, you know, with a startup, everything is like just really tight as you're trying to get things off the ground and you're wearing, you know, 50, 60 hats and pushing and that's exciting. And it's fun because, you know, it's a very, very much a team environment. Everybody's working at the same things, very energized, but sometimes the, the ability to engage the world in a way that's relevant much more than your just your job and the things that you get exposed to and and what that does to your mind in terms of thinking more broadly meeting interesting and capable people that really appealed to me and i and i felt very much at home i wasn't intimidated by the scope or scale but i was energized by it so i, I just decided that you know maybe i'm more cut out for a corporate type role than the entrepreneurial push what have you learned or taken advantage of that you think really have helped you throughout your career experience to date? I mean, as you probably experienced in your own career, engaging with people that have an interest in your success and working with them to learn, improve yourself, and in some cases, mutually learn. We had a group of four of us at Arco that each successively was the youngest vice president in the company. And we just decided to meet regularly and talk about issues and think about things that maybe the company should think about or what is a skill set that we need to, to build that we don't necessarily have. It was really about jointly working the success of each other. And we were all slightly different ages. And so there were some who were a little further along and some who were just emerging. That group of four is still very tight. And somebody just initiated that or? Yeah, it, I would say I probably played a, a fairly big part in that, mainly because they were all more the traditional success path for finance within. And I was this oddball that was coming in from the outside, having done an, a number of different corporate roles, not being hired as a hotshot MBA. But once we started it, it was so invigorating for all four of us that it turned out to be, you know, just a great opportunity. So networking is important, but I think productive networking is very helpful. And I think also engaging proactively, you said, and seeking it out, because I think, I think that's key. Those who do that find it's a tremendous support. Yeah. You know, I think one of the challenges, for instance, of mentoring programs is that people often think, well, I'm just going to get the highest executive I can find to, to be my mentor, and that'll instantly result in, in career success, which is probably one of the least successful paths. You, you want to have somebody who has the time and the interest to support you, because at the end of the day, it's what you do and what you contribute and how you learn from that that's going to determine whether it was a productive relationship or not. So like I said, we sort of self-identify, we mentored each other and it turned out to be great. Now, there were some senior mentors, too, that played a role, like the treasurer that I mentioned. I didn't know she was a mentor 
until she was a mentor. And then she set the trade-off for her were very high expectations for what she expected from me because she, she knew she went out on a limb. And, and that was actually helpful too because it made me it gave me the confidence. If she had confidence in me, then there must be more there than I thought. <laughs> the, so, Well, that's an interesting point. I'm going to probe there for a minute because I've always said of you as someone who had strong confidence and it actually, you know, in the kinds of roles you've led, that's really important. Would you say that's something that came naturally or how did your confidence grow and evolve through your career? I was reasonably confident in a variety of areas, whether it be sports or I was in involved in the performing arts and and oftentimes took leadership roles. But I would say I was surrounded by a lot of really, really smart, accomplished individuals that I kept saying to myself, Am I am I in this league? And this is a question most people ask. Yeah. It's exactly. not talked about enough, but it's a big deal. And what happens is two things. One, I had some people who had good insights that believed in me and gave me room to grow. And I also, I had a a great home life where I was very supported by my wife and my family, which gave me the confidence that, hey, if something doesn't work out here, it's going to be just fine. We'll go do something else. And so I would say, yes, I've, I've always been confident, but confident as in a leader of a major corporation that took a little bit of time and proof for myself, but I got those opportunities. And I would say that's one of the good things that Arco did is they, you rarely did much of your regular job. Once you were identified, they just kept throwing things at you. They say, go, go solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you realize you could solve problems where you didn't know a darn thing about the issue when you went into it, but you had abilities to pull teams together. You had abilities to frame issues and think about them, even if you didn't know the answers, particularly if you didn't know the answers going into it, that gave me, my confidence grew a lot over time. And then by the time I, I was starting to get offered the, the really big roles, I really was, was confident that I could, could take them on. I love that. I love the point about stretch and people, you know, expanding what they, the scope of what they do. And then they learn, look, I can do all these things. And you're right with that comes great confidence. What might be something you wished you'd taken more advantage of along the way? I am completely in awe of my kids' ability to network today. You know, maybe that's from social media as a base, but it's beyond that. They they really put an effort into developing and maintaining relationships across not only their school friends, but people they've met through work, and they invest time in it in a way that I look at it now and I go, wow, you know, I probably missed some real opportunities because I felt like I had, you know, I had a lot of people, I knew a lot of people and I, you know, we had good constructive relationships, but there's something to developing networks that are even broader than the ones that I developed that I think can play a very big role, particularly later in your career. Totally agree. It's absolutely critical. And to your point about relationships, it's not superficial, you know, people are investing in them and, and giving to them as much as they're expecting some some career benefit along the way. So, George, you've mentioned both a very successful career over many, many years, but also raising a family. What might you share about how to best do that to manage a dual career and a family? 
it can be tough. There is, you know, this idea, as a number of people have already discovered, you can't have it all is number one. And you have to know what your priorities are. So my my family was always my first priority. And then when I lost my wife, when my kids were 14, 17, and 19, it required me to take a different role than I had before with someone who had been such a great mother and had stopped working to full-time support the family. So you have to say, well, what are my priorities? And, and you have to get help. So I was very fortunate to find a woman who basically came out of retirement as a nanny to become my house manager and help me make it possible for the kids to have some sense of normalcy in the household. And then I, you know, I basically traveled hardly at all. I happened to work for a company that you know well, Applied Materials, and a great CEO, Mike Splinter, who decided that I was worth supporting and through a difficult time. And, you know, I, I took effectively months off. And fortunately, I had a great team that was able to just take over the responsibilities. And then as soon as I kind of came out of the, you know, got things in order on the home front in a way that where I felt I could do more, you know, the company was was ready to even offer me more responsibility. So they offered me a job reporting to the CEO running strategy and M&A. And I, you know, I just thought, you know, I just can't do it. And they said, well, what do you need to do it? I said, well, I need to hire somebody to do this and some, you know, somebody looking at this, they go, well, just go do it. And so, I mean, what kind of company does that? And I, I just felt a tremendous sense of appreciation for the company stepping up at a time when I needed it. And I tried to repay it every day thereafter. And, and also it's allowed me to be more understanding when people are struggling at work in the future that give them time and help them get through these things. And because A, it's the right thing to do. And B, it, you know, if that person is the right person for your company, then you keep a talent. I think this is so key. And, and you said, you know, what kind of company does that? And you were so fortunate. I was so fortunate in my career, both managers and company cultures who really understood. You have to help your talent be really successful and support them and it pays dividends. And you know what, today, George, that's actually the bar, you know, which is brilliant to see. You're, you reduced travel back then, but today, you know, look at us able to do anything we need to do without traveling. So it was possible, but it wasn't. I miss travel. You know, I, I do too. I, I, became, <laughs> I do too. Over the years, you know, it was such a road warrior environment. So not traveling as much as, has probably been one of the most difficult things to adjust to. I think so. You have clearly had the opportunity over so many years to, you know, see firsthand and work with leaders across the globe. And some of your roles were extremely global. What, in your opinion, would you say were some of those great characteristics that you saw or characteristics of strong, good, great leaders and some practices that you saw? As you know, you know, the CFO and the CEO are are kind of joined at the hip and have to be great partners for the relationship to work. And so the type of people that I like to work most closely with are people that are selfless. And they don't view everything in terms of how it impacts them. They view and make decisions based on how it's going to impact the company first. And, you know, a narcissist for me is very hard 
to build the kind of relationship that you would like to. It doesn't mean that they can't be great CEOs, but I think you spend too much time on things that really don't relate to what's best for the company. And I find that with the limited amount of time that we have available to do the right things, I'd rather work with a selfless individual. I, you know, I certainly think Mike Splinter was a great example of that type of individual who always put the, the mm. company first. I do too, and I would plug Jim Morgan. Jim had this remarkable capacity to engage throughout the organization and always looking for teachable moments, not because you know, he liked to give a speech. He wanted you to be successful, and he genuinely looked for ways of helping. Absolutely. And how about the flip side of that? Things that you've seen that really sort of detract or get in the way or catch up leaders that holds them back from being great. You know, it's going to sound kind of funny, but, you know, CEOs are people. Yes. Humans, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) We all are. Isn't that a funny thing? (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, and they say the same thing about CFOs, you know, some sort of automaton that just worries about the, the numbers. You know, people don't like interpersonal conflict. And people don't like to give up on something because it it might say that they're not, you know, pro-innovation or, you know, they're mean-spirited or whatever. And, And CEOs, one of the challenges is if they need to make hard decisions that involve difficult interpersonal discussions and changes on their teams... I have found almost limitless patience in this area. And that's an area where sometimes people confuse being nice with being good to the company. And, you know, the CEO is ultimately the person that determines how strong is the organization. Because if you have somebody very strong underneath you, they're likely to have a strong organization under them. But if you allow weakness to continue, then that can create weak organizations under there as well. So I would say it's CEOs that can't make the hard call. I've got, I have a a favorite quote that if you ask people that have worked for me, they'll, they got to hate it, but then they got to appreciate it. But I always refer to a T.E. Lawrence, the Lawrence of Arabia quote of provoke the inevitable. And too often, you know, people will see a problem and, You know, it's the I will get to it eventually mindset as opposed to it's going to create some churn and difficulty, but it's the right thing to do. The sooner you get to that, there's so many things that come out of making those decisions because people in the organization, they know where the problems are. They know what's not getting addressed. Then they use that to form, well, what is acceptable behavior? So failing to deal with these things is really undermining your ability to lead. And I don't think that's appreciated by enough CEOs. So, Totally agree. George, what's next? And how do you think about, you know, let's call it the next chapter or what's ahead? And also, I'm curious, since you shared that quote, time on other interests. You, you know, I mentioned earlier, you're on the board of the Old Globe Theater. And, and I don't know to what degree you were able to focus on other interests along, you know, the whole journey to date. But what's ahead? Well, I'm looking for, and I've already started it. Actually, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make up for lost time on travel. I have a, a number of trips planned with family and friends that I'm looking forward to, and I am able to actually be a better board member for the Old Globe. It's actually a, a great time for coming out of the pandemic for theaters, and at the same time, 
they have a great leadership team and a good endowment to work with. So it's a world of possibilities for them. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being more actively uh, engaged in that. I will eventually go on one, maybe two public boards. And then my guess is maybe one or two private boards. It's important work and it's super interesting work. So I'll miss the role, there's no question. But there's areas that are in it, like ESG, that is very active with, and and Intel and other places, that I will stay involved with. And particularly as ESG becomes a bigger part of financial reporting and other things, I think I can be, I think I can be helpful. So I'm staying engaged there. And then on security and cyber, I've always been involved with the government and various agencies to not only protect the assets and you know intellectual property of the companies that I served with, but but also, again, as we talked about, to build bridges that allow both to be more safe and secure going forward. And, and I, I find that very interesting. I'm, I'm going to the Aspen Institute security session in July to stay engaged on these issues because I find them particularly of interest. And, and as I go on boards, I think that's an area where I can perhaps be helpful. Awesome. Favorite book? Remains of the Day. Oh, yeah. It was a movie, too, wasn't it? By Kazuo Ishiguro. It is just a fantastically written exploration of a subject that actually I think is a great management training tool. It's about a, a butler who had kind of blind loyalty and missed all the things that were happening as World War II started to impact Europe and in this individual's case, England, where he worked for a Nazi sympathizer that he didn't realize. And while he was having this blind loyalty, he missed an opportunity to engage in a relationship with somebody that he worked with that would have been life-changing for him. And you could see it unfolding and it was just it's so well written and the sentences are so dense that I found myself like rereading them two or three times to make sure that I got all the meaning out of them never had a book that had that impact on me but I also thought you know interesting when I look back on it it's kind of a great metaphor for executives who fail to step back and challenge the mythology of their company and their immediate surroundings. So they lose their ability to be effective in driving change and preparing the company for the future. And I just thought, what a sad thing that is. And and the book was, you really felt for the individual who at the end of their life realized the trade-offs that had been mistakenly made and not understood at the time. So... Love it. Love it. I want to go reread it. And you mentioned travel. So, and you've done a ton of traveling. Favorite place you may have traveled to and where would you still like to go? Probably my favorite single location is still Venice. I think it's such a unique and beautiful city. So any excuse I can have to go there and just eat in cafes and walk, you know, the city is... Yeah, I never get tired of it. England, though, I mean, London, having lived there and spent a lot of time in London, I do, I think London may be my, my favorite city by far. But, you know, I, the world's an interesting place. You know, if you haven't been to Shanghai or Beijing, they're great to go to, but you can't go now. I used to love spending time in Moscow when I was on the board of a Russian joint venture. But 
who knows when that will ever make sense while isolating themselves from the rest of the world with this terrible Ukrainian war. So I think, you know, you can learn a lot from the people. And one of the things that you learn from people is you can have relationships that are deep and meaningful in almost any of these locations. It's, it's usually not the people that are the problem when it comes to difficulties between countries. A lot of commonality in what's important, family's important. Trust is important. You know, shared moments are important. All those things are true all over the world. So you can have a great experience wherever you go if you, if you realize that and don't come with a bunch of preconceived notions. One last one. If you could meet any one leader, living or not, who might that be? I would probably go, I know it's a little bit trite, but either Abraham Lincoln, just to get a sense for what was really going on in his mind and did he understand the historical relevance of all the things that he was trying to do, or King Henry VIII, because oh what, my. An what a what a what a what <laughs> I didn't see that coming. That's hysterical. Yeah, what oh. you know he yeah he's a piece of work. <laughs> he was he was a piece of work. So I mean, there's lots of people who are just evil that I don't I don't want to know what's in their mind because it can't be good. But he was certainly a character. Yeah, and I lived when I lived in England. I lived in his old hunting grounds oh. in Burwood Park, and uh-huh. so I always felt a small connection there. What's a piece of career advice that you might share with us? Something that stayed with you through your career? What might you share with us? Get out of your box. Don't define yourself with borders because if you're going to, and again, this maybe this is more for large companies, but I think it works at, in entrepreneurial settings as well. If you try and set boundaries on how you think about problems, you're only going to be good in the narrowest sense. Whereas if you are willing to understand how you're impacting other parts of the organization and then take on issues that are otherwise don't neatly stop at the border that the rest of the company would like to put around you, you can have much more impact than if you stay in your happy place. And so I always refer to that as getting out of your box. The other thing was stamped on my forehead by the CFO at the time of Arco, who was this giant man with a super intense nature and but a great mind. Always approached coming up with a solution as if you're going to be the decision maker. You're the one who has to live with it, as opposed to giving an answer that perhaps your organization or your immediate manager would like to hear because they don't always, they're not always willing to put themselves in the role of the decision maker. And I remember giving a, when I was very early on as an analyst, there was a project on a real estate project that the company was thinking about. And, and I, I really wasn't happy with the answer that the real estate team came up with, but you know, my job was to do the analysis and, and to present the analysis. And I had talked to them about what I thought was a better path, but they they felt for for a, a number of reasons that they didn't want to do that. So we went in, and you go into this, if you remember the Wizard of Oz with the long haul, this is the days when these executives had massive offices, you know. So you walked in, and, and his desk is way, you know, at the end of this hallway. And, you know, you can just feel this the tension building as you're walking in. We give the presentation, and he listens, and, and then he stops, and he says, George, you really think this is the right answer? This is your best 
thinking as to what the right answer is for the company. And he's looking at me with these eyes that are just like boring a hole in my head. I must have been projecting that I didn't think it was the right answer. I don't know. And so you can imagine the, the discomfort of the two executives from the real estate side. And he turns to them and goes, thank you. Why don't you step out? I need to talk to George. And uh -oh. <laughs> oh, <geez>. uh -oh. <laughs> and, and again, this is a great gift that he gave me. <laughs> but like I said, it was stamped on my forehead. And he started off, he goes, don't ever, ever bring me something that isn't your best thinking of what is right for the company ever. And he said, that's why you're there, because I believe you can actually look at these things and come up with something that will be better than they would come up on their own. I don't need you to be their, their mouthpiece. I need you to not only help them, but help the company by making recommendations. You're not going to always be right, but don't ever bring me something that you don't believe in. And that was, I was great. I thought I might've been getting fired. I didn't know, you know, it wasn't that bad a presentation, but I, you know, he's such a scary guy at the time. And uh, he's turned out to be a great, again, unintended mentor that I learned so much from over time. But that's the last time I ever made a recommendation that I didn't believe was in the, the best interest of the company. That's awesome. George, thank you so much for, for being with us and for sharing so personally and so openly. There were so many great insights and you gave us so much to think about. I just want to say too, thanks for all the impact on you know your journey so far. And we're wishing you just really wonderful things ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate it. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Music